0: Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. What does the nation Egypt represent in the Bible? When Scripture mentions Egypt, Assyria, or any country, is it talking about historical empires or is something more going on? What happens when we understand the nations mentioned in the Bible as characters in a story? Is Egypt a good or a bad character? What is the significance of Hosea's proclamation, Out of Egypt have I called my son? Working through these questions, Richard and I consider the many ways that Christians today continue to betray the Lord, turning away from him to seek the favor of empires long gone, but still very real. You're listening to the
1: Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos, And this is Dr. Richard Benton.
0: And you are listening to episode 34 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We talk a lot about the Bible as Literature. It's the title of our podcast, in fact. We don't just talk about it. That's how we've branded this series, this program. And it's important occasionally to take a step back for our listeners and really explain how dealing with the Bible as literature helps to unlock the hidden treasure of the text, you know, the Pearl of Great Price. we hear about in the new testament is the pearl of the teaching it's the pearl of the wisdom of the gospel but that pearl is i think hidden away when people don't deal with the text as literature somehow when you approach it as story setting aside whatever religious background you come from whichever denomination whichever group if you just try to deal with the text on its own terms as story that's when it really begins to speak to you in different ways and allows you to catch some glimpse of the versatility of the genre and the way in which the writers of the Bible play with symbol and function and character to do some interesting things that you would miss otherwise. You were talking about one striking idea, Dr. Benton, and that is that even
1: nations could function as characters in the story. You want to talk about that? I think we should look at the Bible on two levels. One, it comes out of a historical setting, but within that historical setting, the text itself uses different ideas and notions and characters and places and settings in order to tell a story. So for example, in reading Hosea, the Lord accuses the people of going to Egypt of making a deal with Assyria. So scholars often will say, okay, so we understand what this is. This is probably before the attack of the Assyrians against Israel. So that would be sometime in the eighth century BCE and Egypt was very strong. We have writings from Egypt talking about Assyria, from Assyria talking about Egypt. We know that they were both very powerful, even extra biblically. So that's what we can understand historically when we talk about Egypt and Assyria. Then we can move it to the next level and say, well, we know that in this world, These were the two major superpowers and we know that they clashed in battle and we know that they wrote about defeating each other in battle and and this sort of thing. So we know that these were really powerful and we happen to know that Israel was right in between them. We know this from history, from archeology, span extra-biblical history. So when
0: you say we know this, for our listeners, just to clarify what you mean, is that there are multiple sources from various locations and various traditions of history writing that corroborate some of these statements. So you would never say that based on one text or even two texts that there would be enough evidence to verify that something was historical.
1: Right. When I say historical, I mean that it's verifiable. And we have multiple sources that attest to the fact that these were both powerful empires. So we know that. And then we know some other things too. I mean, if anyone has ever seen a picture of Egypt, which I can't imagine there's someone who hasn't seen a picture of Egypt. What have you seen pictures of? I have a picture of Egypt on my wall. There you go.
0: (laughs) It's a beautiful Coptic map of Egypt drawn out on papyrus.
1: And the picture that you see is the pyramids. And the next picture would be then the giant statues next to the pyramids. And this is at a time when there was no empire state building. And these were the biggest structures in the world. And this was a very powerful testimony. But unlike the World Trade Center or the Empire State Building, these were not office buildings. These were tombs and they were dedicated to the pharaohs to ensure a good afterlife for these kings of theirs
0: well to ensure the continued tyranny of the kings as we've talked in the past exactly
1: recently i had the opportunity to go to paris and i went to the louvre and i got to see some of the monuments that they found in babylonia and in Assyria, where you would see these giant two-story carved images of the king holding the head of a lion. They would have these giant carved panels when you would enter into the king's palace, not of wood, of stone. And they would show the destruction and dismantling of a city. So if you're a foreign emissary and you came to the capital of Assyria, you would see pictures of how powerful the king is, Hmm. how powerful his army is, how he could destroy a city all in one image. And that's what you knew about this king, the death and destruction that this king could bring. And that was what greeted you at, hello. So now you know the power of Assyria. Again, this is corroborated in archaeological evidence we have about the Assyrians and from what was written about the Assyrians. We know a lot about these empires, way more than we know about Israel, actually. But then in the literary context, there is a story about Egypt. There's a story about Egypt in which Egypt who has a pharaoh, a king, who is not named, just pharaoh. We use it as if it's a proper name, but it's just like saying king.
0: Not dissimilar from Caesar or the Slavic adaptation of the word Caesar, czar. Right. You never talk about a specific individual. You refer to the czar generally. It's a functional term.
1: Right. So in the biblical story, Egypt is a particular place, not just a place that has pyramids, not just a place that produced documents. It is a place where Israel was birthed israel was enslaved there significantly in order to build these monuments and these tombs whether they actually did or not we don't know we can't corroborate that piece of information we do know they have pyramids but the story in the bible says it was israelite slaves who built them it was the descendants of joseph who used to be friends of pharaoh who built them and the lord had to muster all of his power in order to defeat the power of egypt's army and then free israel in order to become his slaves and to follow his law in order to become his people so egypt performs a function in the story because they are the ones who enslaved them it was the power of pharaoh that enslaved them to build monuments to death monuments that would ensure tyranny unto the ages of ages." So it's interesting when
0: I'm hearing you discuss the role of Egypt in the enslavement of the people to the work of the flesh, which goes nowhere. They're building these monuments that go nowhere. My mind fast forwards to Galatians. What is Paul saying? Because if that's the function Egypt's performing, what is he saying about the leaders of the Jerusalem church and the way in which they've co-opted the Torah? It's fascinating. Mm -hmm.
1: And, And at the same time, it's ominous to draw those parallels. Well, and we can see that Egypt has a function in the Gospels too. When Jesus is born, where do they flee to? They flee to Egypt so that the Lord can say, out of Egypt I have called my son, which is a quote from Hosea. I believe it's chapter 11.
0: Which makes the play in Galatians even more interesting because now you have the leaders of the church in Jerusalem functioning as the taskmasters of slavery and death, and you have Egypt assuming a prophetic function against the inside community, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew. What's interesting about dealing with Scripture as literature is you begin to see that all of these symbols are interchangeable and there can always be a kind of got gotcha you moment where you want to start saying, well, we're talking about the nation, Egypt. Are we talking about a nation or are we talking about a character, a function, a mode of behavior? that can appear anywhere at any time. Anyways, it's just, it's, right. it makes the whole thing take on a
1: whole new level of meaning and cool. depth. And it's interesting because in Matthew, how long does Jesus spend in Egypt? Like two or three verses. He just goes there in order to come out. That's it. It's like those first two verses of Exodus. It's like, oh yeah, and then a couple of generations happened and then they were enslaved. Okay, let's move on. He compacts several hundred years into three verses. He goes into Egypt simply so that he can be brought out of Egypt. Well, why do you have to be brought out of Egypt? Because Egypt is the land of tyranny in which you were born, right? If this is the case, when Hosea accuses Israel of going to Egypt, the scholar can say, yes, this is a historical place that we know is very powerful and that sort of thing, and you shouldn't go to this powerful place. Okay, but the scholar can't stop there. The scholar has to say, Egypt is the place where you were born and the slavery from which I brought you. So going back there is not just going to Egypt a place, it's going back to the place of slavery, the place of your birth, and they're equated. We can't stop by saying, oh yeah, it's a historical place, hooray, now we know that the Bible is historical, but you say, Yes, we know it's a historical place, and it served a function in the literary story of the Bible, and therefore has a meaning, and because it has this meaning, it says something when Jesus has to scurry away to Egypt and then come right back. This is important. The function Egypt as
0: the place where you were born into slavery becomes a kind of metaphor when hosea talks about you going back to egypt for example it could very easily have nothing to do with the act of going to egypt at all it could be just a way of harassing the israelite to say look you were offered this teaching this teaching sets you free from the tyranny of human kings and human kingdoms and all of the things that worldly people invest themselves in you were set free from that yet like the people in the story of the exodus When you suddenly find yourself at the mercy of God in the wilderness, the slavery to Pharaoh seems more comfortable. So there's a kind of, not just a betrayal of the gift that God gave you, but a kind of cowardice Where you would prefer to be abused by your taskmaster than to face the terrible freedom in the Torah that is afforded you by God in the wilderness, where you are now the slave of God, which sets you free from worldly abuse. It's a very interesting way of speaking.
1: Once you use those metaphors, you have the ability to speak much more deeply about what's going on there. But then
0: just when you think Egypt is evil... Just when you're convinced that Egypt is the evil character in Scripture, it suddenly becomes the right hand of the Lord's judgment. And it is from Egypt that the Messiah hails of the New Testament. That's no joke, in my opinion. It's just as difficult as the image of Babylon being the manifestation of God's justice in Ezekiel. Because people think of these symbols in strictly literal historical terms, they often miss the bigger point that's being made. How can you say that the son of David, the Messianic heir, God's anointed one, is coming from Egypt? You can draw parallels, which some scholars do, and talk about how Israel came out of Egypt into the wilderness and became a nation in exile. So too Jesus was in slavery to Egypt and came out. But I think that there's something else going on. I think that Egypt is actually functioning positively in that story.
1: Positive in that they are the ones from whom you're brought in order to give birth. Maybe this is the best way of putting it. Egypt itself is neither good nor bad. Going to Egypt is bad. Leaving Egypt is good. Maybe that's how it works. I don't know. I would have to think about that further, but that could be the well, case. It's
0: complicated, though, because, again, in Matthew, Joseph took his family to Egypt under the Lord's instruction. Ah, true. So what that makes me think is that it's playing with the same symbology. It's playing with the same storyline. It's kind of a mini Torah, as some have said. But it's playing with it. It's doing something different to kind of turn everything
1: upside down. Of course, because one Joseph goes to Egypt, the other Joseph goes to Egypt, and that's a clear parallel. When Joseph the son of Jacob goes in and Joseph the father of Jesus goes in, they both have to be brought out in order for the Lord to form his people. Now, here's my next question I have. If this is how Egypt is to function, look how rich and robust This image of Egypt is. But the Lord does not just accuse them of going to Egypt. He also accuses them of making a deal with Assyria. So what's wrong with Assyria? Well, Assyria, we know, is a country that was known for its exceeding cruelty in coming into your country and dismantling it, burning it down, and sending your people into exile. These were, as far as I know, the first documented ethnic cleansers that we have where they would come in, kill as many people as they could. The people left over, they would uproot and bring somewhere else in their empire. Stalin learned from these people, okay? This is what they were like. And so they were ones who would come in to roll over your country and destroy it just like they depicted on the walls. This is what they were known for. So why would you make a deal with the ones whose most salient characteristic is their ability to roll over and destroy your people you're going to go and make a deal with them well of course you make a deal with them because that's who you don't want to come into your country the last people you want to come into your country are the ones you know who are going to come in and if they come destroy it destroy your city burn it down and take everyone into slavery that's one thing we also have in these wall murals pictures of people being held by the neck with ropes and being led away okay you want to go make a deal with them These are the people who have the power of death and you want to go and make a deal with them. Why? In order to save yourself from death. With no
0: regard for the ones whom they persecute. Your mention of Stalin is really appropriate because when 50 million people are silently executed without any resistance, it's only because there are many millions more who are willing to make a deal with the oppressor and look the other way. The people who walk quietly to their death without resisting have made a deal. It's a kind of complacency that's built on a trust in the power of death. And the people that are facilitating or remaining ambivalent have made the same deal that God is accusing the Israelites of making in the Old Testament. It's an interesting point.
1: You are making a deal with the people who are going to bring you death in order to help stave off death. Already, one of the problems in Hosea is that the people are always trying to make a deal with the ones who can bring life and death. Everyone except the Lord. Who's the only one who can bring life. The only one who can bring life and death. He's the only one. He gives you life and he takes away life. He might bring Assyrians in to take away your life, but he's the one who gives and takes away life. This is an
0: interesting point because when discussing the power of death, people forget that the illusion of the power of life, which is what kings try to claim, is not the extent of the fraud because the point that is being made again and again in the prophets is that no earthly king would have the power to take the life of anyone were it not the Lord who was pulling the strings.
1: Just like Jesus says to Pilate. Pontius Pilate, exactly. So then what we have in Hosea when it juxtaposes these two, that you're going to Egypt and making a deal with Assyria, what are you doing? You're making a deal with the one who enslaved you, who kept you from being a people, who enslaved you in order to make monuments to death, in order to make eternal tyranny a possibility. And on the other hand, the people who by their very existence caused death, So when you cause death on the one hand, and you make monuments to death on the other hand, then you bring them together, you are completely sold on these countries, these empires' ability to bring life and death. You now are in league with the people who bring life and death under this illusion. When
0: Paul talks about the power of death in the New Testament, when the proclamation of the resurrection deals with the power of death, we have to always force ourselves to contextualize those discussions in this context that you're providing. Because the power of death that scripture is dealing with all hinges on this cowardice that leads to infidelity towards God and capitulation towards human beings who appear to hold power over life and death. But that means that it extends beyond capitulation to earthly tyrants. It's capitulation to commercialism capitulation to wealth, capitulation to anything that perpetuates the illusion that you can avoid ultimately your own
1: end by doing something worldly. This is the beauty of reading the Bible as literature. We're not stuck with an Egypt that existed 3,000 years ago on the banks of the Nile, and we're not stuck with a Assyria that existed between the two rivers. We now have monuments to death and the power to bring death. And once you realize this is the accusation against Israel, then you say, okay, now we can understand something deeper. And I don't believe enough scholars go into this depth in looking at these images, because now you say, okay, reader in the United States in the 21st century. Yes, we are not making any deals with Egypt. This is true. But are we making deals with Egypt? Are we making deals with those who build the monuments of death, are we making deals with those that enslaved us before the Lord brought us out? Are we making deals with those things that could kill us that we're trying to stave off so we can be happy in the meantime? And this is the accusation against us, the church in the 21st century, is that we are making deals. We are making deals and shutting the Lord out as the only one who has the ability to bring life and death.
0: It's a very nuanced deal that we cut because no one could readily, easily draw a connection between the imposition of certain religious traditions by the church leaders in Jerusalem and the tyranny of the Egyptians. That connection is not readily apparent. No one would easily draw a connection between the whip of the taskmaster in Egypt and the imposition of circumcision in Galatians. You can't draw these connections unless you are steeped in the text and steeped in the text as functional metaphor. Because when Saint Paul is critiquing the church, he is applying the story of the Exodus from Egypt. He is applying the critique of Hosea against Israel. And I think it takes a lot of effort and a lot of flexibility in your thinking, not creative thinking, because the creativity is there in the text, but flexibility a kind of resistance against the binary categories that we try to force literature into, especially sacred
1: texts. Allowing the Bible to be free of the historical binds that you want to keep it in, allow it to apply to you more easily. It's so easy to talk about Israel did this, and Israel did that, and Israel did this, Israel did that. I've heard this so many times. We are Israel. We, the church, claim to be the new Israel, the next Israel, whatever we want to say. We make this claim. Okay, if we make this claim, then we have continuity with this Israel. This
0: Israel, which happens to be the antagonist in the Older Testament. This always amazes me. People try to read the Older Testament through a very limited anti-literary lens, for lack of a better word. And they come away thinking it's the story of Israel and event A happened, event B happened, event C happened. And so now we know the story of Israel. And now we're in event Z. And that's actually incorrect. The Bible is the story of God. It is not the story of his people. The Bible is telling the story of how God, the maker of the heavens and the earth, is repeatedly betrayed and victimized by his own people. That is why ultimately his son is the only victim in the story. It's a very important point. Human beings approach the story with our victim mentality. We try to find the protagonist and project ourselves into the protagonist in the story. So we say, okay, we're Israel. And then we begin to try to make out of Israel a protagonist. When the one character into whom scripture does not allow you to project your ego, God,
1: is the only protagonist and the only victim in the story. We have to then look at our own actions in light of this. The very deals we make to keep us safe betray God. So be very aware of whatever deals you're making that are keeping you safe, that are keeping you comfortable because these are the root of betrayal against God and are manifestations of your own infidelity.
0: It's been a great discussion this week, Dr. Benton. Thank, Thank you. you. Take care. All right.
1: You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.